You are listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Well, this time our threes and fours are dismissed to their classes. I see it already happening, so praise God for that. Uh, If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning, Uh, and if you don't, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's all right. We've got Bibles for you. If you just want to slip up your hand and one of our members will bring one to you. Exodus chapter 1. As we continue on with this kind of secondary, uh, secondary sermon series as we go through the Bible reading plan that we've been doing corporately as a church together. Exodus chapter 1, second book of the Bible. Last week... Uh, Randy Harvey, he faithfully led us through Genesis, specifically Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. But, but not only did he, he lead us through that, but he really showed us, uh, kind of, he gave us kind of a recap of this really the second half of the book of Exodus. We saw the family of Abraham and Isaac and his son Jacob. And last week, Randy really, we zeroed in on his son Joseph. We saw last week that Joseph had been, uh, he had been, he'd been sold into slavery by his brothers. He'd been treated wrong. He had been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He had evil done to him. And yet, uh, Joseph, amazingly, through only God, had this eternal perspective when he said in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, he's talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. And even though that is amazing, we can look at that, t- that verse, and it's, it's mind-blowing, right? Like, that is an amazing truth. The picture that we get of the Israelites as a whole, of this, of this family unit, is pretty bleak. The, the, the family of Abraham and of Israel and Joseph, they found themselves in Egypt because there is a great, there's a famine, and they got nothing to eat. So they go and find help in the land of Egypt. And as we turn the page from Genesis 50 to Exodus 1, turn this tiny, not even one page later, there's been hundreds of years that have passed. So it's sometimes hard for us to see that, but there's been hundreds of years that has passed between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1. So let's read Exodus 1 in its entirety, verses 1 through 22, and, and let's just see where this family is now that, that, we, that we have been tracking with over the last two weeks. Verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, 
The people of Israel are too mighty, are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt, he called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God, he dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded his, all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. Your name is above every name. You're sovereign. And by your blood, you have created a people for yourself. So I pray this morning as your people that you would speak to us, that you would show us what you have for us in your word. You would encourage us to the word of truth you would convict our hearts by your living and active word. And you would call us to deeper trust and reliance on you. I pray that you use the truth, nothing but the truth, to build up your people this morning. Pray for me as I preach that it would be nothing in me that, that comes out of my mouth. It would be all your word through your spirit to your church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you look back at verses 1 through 6. We pick up with this family, right? We pick up with the family of God, the same father and the same brothers that sold Joseph into slavery. Here they are in Egypt, except, verse 6 says, they've all died. All the people that we've read about in Genesis so far are gone. But look at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The family is no longer, I say little, it was 70 people, but no longer one single family unit. But for the first time, we see the family of God, the Israelites, it doesn't refer to just a family, but we see a nation starting to form. Here's truth number one. Truth number one is this. We've already kind of alluded to it in Brandon's 
prayer and, and as we've seen already, but truth number one is God's plan is to create a people for himself. God's plan is to create a people for himself. If you look at the language of verse 7, what does it say? It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and grew increased greatly. They multiplied and grew. Where have we heard this language before? In Genesis 1, when God creates Adam and Eve, the first humans, he commissions them and blesses them. And the first thing he says, Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They fail with this. That's what Genesis tells us. And, and after the flood, when God uh, wipes away everyone, he, he keeps hold of one family and restarts Noah and his family. And after the flood water subside in Genesis 9-1, you'll never guess what he says. And God blessed Noah. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same exact language in Exodus 1. When God called Abraham to himself in Genesis 12, the originator of this family that we're reading about, what does he say in Genesis 12 too? And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And here in Exodus 1, we see this starting to take shape. We see this family that has been fruitful and has multiplied, starting to become the nation that God has promised that they would be. From the first pages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, we see that God is creating a people for himself. Not only was that the plan back then, but this is still, the plan hasn't changed. God has not switched up. This is still the plan. And here's really good news. Back then, in order to be a part of the family of God, the people of God, you had to be born specifically into that family. You had to be a direct descendant of Jacob and Joseph of that bloodline. That's how you were in the family. But the good news for us this morning is that there is a new and living way. There's a new and living way to be a part of the people of God, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Through his death on the cross, he made a way for sinners of Gentile descent like me and you. If you are not from, if you can't trace your roots back to Jewish descent, we're all Gentiles in this room. And through the cross, he has made a way for people like us to be grafted in to the family of God. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First, yes to the Jew, but also to the Greek, to everyone else. First Peter 2, 9 and 10, what Valerie read in the service, says, but you are, he's talking to Christians, talking to us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And this is the whole point of 
really Romans like 2, 3, and 4, we see Paul saying that it's faith in Jesus that creates his people. It's not a specific tie to physical Abraham, but it's faith in Jesus. So let me ask you, just pause and ask you this morning, are you a part of God's people? This is a question for you, hopefully, to pause and actually ponder. Have you placed your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation? If you've never done this, there's time to do it soon, today, right now. You can pray and repent of your sin and and ask God to forgive you and trust in Jesus that he really will forgive you and create in you a new life and a new person. And then if you call on Jesus as Savior and Lord, we have a promise in Romans 10. It says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Not an if, but you will be brought into the people of God by believing in him. And all of us who have placed the faith in Jesus, you are a part of God's people. Whether you want to believe it or not, you are. You're a part of God's people. You are the nation. We are the nation of God. He has transferred us. He's transferred us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun. Burke Parsons, I don't even, I don't know who this is, but he is a theologian of some type, pastor. Uh, he has this quote, and I don't know what he says in other times, but I like this quote. He, uh, he talks about in Genesis 12, right, when God says to Abraham, look into the stars and all the stars. That's the nation that I'm making for you. This is what he says. He says, dear dad and Christian, when Abraham counted the stars, he was counting you. We are a part of the nation of God. Not through family tie, but through faith in Jesus. God's plan is to create a people for himself. This is what he's doing in Exodus 1. This is what he's doing now. But as we go back to Exodus 1, just because the Israel, just because the nation of Israel is growing and exceedingly kind of becoming a nation, it doesn't mean everything is going amazing. If you didn't pick up on that the first time we read it through. Look with me at verse 8. There's kind of a new section now. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. A new king, a new era, a new reign taking shape, verse 9. And this king says to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too mighty, too many, and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. Therefore, they set taskmasters to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built Pharaoh's cities, Pithom and Ramses. This king, this new king, is not so happy that the Israelites are seeming, are growing. So what does he do? We saw in verses 9 through 11 that he deals shrewdly with them. He afflicts them. But it only gets more unfair and unfair. Look at me at verse 13 and 14. So they, the the Egyptians, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives, they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So capture the scene, capture what's picture, picture what is happening here. The people of God are multiplying. Like God, it's remarkable. God is 
divinely blessing these people to grow at this rapid rate. Like, it's clear that God has his, is creating his people. And that makes the king of Egypt nervous at best, but probably more petrified. Right? He sees him and says, oh, snap. These people are growing, and they're growing in number. What if they become mightier than us? What if they overthrow us? That would not be good. So what does he do? He enslaves them. He ruthless, the text says twice, ruthlessly lords over them, making them work night and day in slave labor. This was the existence of a Hebrew person, of an Israelite. They woke up, they worked as slaves, and they went to sleep. The evil king was persecuting God's people. It was the darkest of times. It was the darkest of times to be a, an Israelite, to be the people of God. But in all of this, there's a, there's a verse that pops out to us. Verse 12 says this, But the more they, the Israelites, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread. This little family they're in dread of the Israelites, I mean, of the people of Israel. If truth number two was God is, is God's plan is to build a people for himself, here's truth number two. God uses persecution to accomplish his plan. God uses persecution to accomplish it. The more evil and the more bitterness that Pharaoh, the king in Egypt, he brings into their lives, the text says, the more that happened, the more they multiplied. Like, the very thing that, that Pharaoh was trying to prevent, he caused to happen by persecuting them. Persecution for God's people leading to the multiplying of God's people, this is not, uh, this is not an isolated theme in Exodus. It's not. It's everywhere in the Bible, especially I'm thinking in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, we see this happening. The persecution of God's people in his church leading to the multiplication of God's people in his church. In Acts 6 and 7, we're introduced to a man named Stephen. Stephen believes in Jesus and he stands in front of the Jewish synagogue, the religious leader. He stands before everybody and he delivers one of, the, I mean, really the first one of the first Christian sermons, and it's filled with, I mean, connects the Old Testament with New Testament. It's beautiful, and he talks about Jesus, and it's, he's emboldened. And what do the people do when they hear his belief in Jesus? It says they rise up and stone him to death. And here's what we read in Romans 8.1. And Saul approved, yeah, that Saul, who we know is Paul, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and, and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered because of persecution went about preaching the word. I'm sure that Saul 
he thought he was doing exactly what Pharaoh thought he was doing when he persecuted the Christians. He thought, oh, here's this people that's growing in number. I'm going to squash them, right? I'm going to put an end to this, this new regime, this new group of people who is rising up. I'm going to kill Stephen, and I'll terrify them, and they'll shut up, and nothing will happen. But the very act of persecuting the church is what causes the church to spread and go, and everywhere they went, it says they preached the word. The means in which the gospel went to Judea and Samaria was not a strategic plan, but it was persecution. Listen, our faith, our church, Christianity, it stands on the lives of men and women who died at the hands of evil men. It stands on people who believed this word, and they believed it down to their bones, and they were willing to give their lives for it. There are men and women on the mission field right now, when they read Exodus 1 and read about the bitter treatment of Christians and those who believe in God, that's a reality for them. There's women like Karen Watson. I was introduced to Karen's story when I was a junior in high school, and it radically kind of shaped my life. Karen Watson is an IMB, an International Mission Board missionary, uh, and she ministered. She was sent to Iraq in 2003 to be a missionary. And she knew that when she went, she might never return because it was hostile, to say the least. And after going, or prior to her going, sorry, she, she left a letter for her pastors, her two pastors to read. It was dated March 7th, 2003, and she was killed by a, a radical group in the Middle East one year later on March 15th, 2004. And this is what the letter reads. She'll be on the screen, part of it. She says, Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. She says, When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. She says, I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. And she says, to obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. And she says, my, his glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. And then she goes on later and she outlines the missionary heart. What sent her to do this dangerous thing? She says, care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. She says, I was not called to comfort or success. I was called to obedience. She says, there is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. She says, I love you too in my church family in his care. Karen. I don't know how to pronounce that word. Salam. Karen. Her death was not a tragedy, right? Her death was not meaningless, but God uses the persecution of his church to spread his kingdom. God has used her witness to inspire, embolden, and send out men and women whose objective is obedience to God over and above all other things whose sole ambition is that God would be glorified and that would be our greatest reward. Ligon Duncan, who is a theologian, a pastor in Mississippi, he tells a story 
of, uh, I heard it this week as I was listening to him preach this passage. He tells the story of a 17 or 18 year old uh, Muslim girl who converted to Christ out of a closed, radical country, Muslim country. And because she converted to Christ, her uncle tried to kill her. Her, 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 her uncle tries to strangle and kill her. And when she got to the States to study, uh, somebody asked her, what were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking when, when your uncle, someone who you probably grew up with and were close with, tried to kill you? And this is what she says, 17 or 18 year old girl. She says this, I thought this man has a religion that he would kill for, but I have a savior that I would die for. <laughs> she can teach us a lot about what it means to be a Christian. She can teach me what it means to be a Christian. The very worst thing that can happen to us, to be persecuted, to be worked as slaves, to be mocked, beaten, or even killed. God uses it to accomplish his plan and for, for, for him to get glory. He uses it. Like from the plan that, was, that God put in place before time began, he uses the worst things to accomplish it. So let me pause right here and ask you, how do you view persecution in your life? Now, we might not be like in Exodus, and we might not be caused to work ruthlessly as slaves. You might not be threatened to be killed because of your faith in Jesus. But I know, I know, I'm looking around the room, and I know of people who have told me they've lost family members or friends because of their belief in Jesus. I know hearing from some of our students that belief in Jesus has costed them friends. It's costed them for their teachers to look at them and to think they're crazy <laughs> and to, to act differently towards them than the rest of their students. Maybe you've lost a job or the potential for a job because of your faith in Jesus. Listen, it should come to no surprise to us. If we call ourselves Jesus followers, how was Jesus treated? He was persecuted. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was hung on a cross to die. So it should come to no surprise that following this Jesus would result in some of the same things. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. This is what we're actually studying this week at youth group. 1 Peter 4, 12 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Rejoice in so far that you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do you view your sufferings this way? I know a lot of times I'm not viewing my sufferings this way, right? Not rejoicing because things are happening. Do you? We're called to rejoice because God is doing something. We're going to see God is doing something greater. Going back to Exodus, the king of Egypt, he's not done. We, we read that he works them as slaves. That's horrible. He persecutes them, but he's not done oppressing the people in Exodus 1. He only ramps up the persecution. Look at verses 15 and 17, 15 through 17. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, 
one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua. Is when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. In a desperate effort to control the Israelites from spreading any more, Pharaoh the king issues an evil decree to the midwives that they should kill if any male son is born, kill him to, to stop the spread of the people. But we learn the names of two midwives. We learn the names of two Israelite women who worked as midwives named Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua. Don't you find it interesting, like just as an aside a little bit, like God goes out of his way to name these two people. We never learn the name of the, of the king of Egypt. Pharaoh's another name for a king. You never learn what his name is. He's a nameless king. But here, we learn the names of two Israelite enslaved women. Like, it's recorded in all of our Bibles to read and to remember. And as we'll see, I kind of want to be like Shipra and Pua when I grow up. We're going to see in a second. Throughout... Uh, that was not my notes. Uh, so here are these two socially low-class, enslaved Israelite women, Shipra and Pua. That leads us to truth number three. God uses unlikely people to accomplish his plan. God uses unlikely people. these two Israelite midwives, how in the world did Shifra and Pua have the courage to stand up against the evil king? How in the world did they do it? Was it through their own might, their own power? Verse 17 says, they feared God. Because they feared, fear is not that's a word that the Old Testament uses a lot. It doesn't mean they're terrified sitting in the corner, shivering in their boots. It means that they deeply loved God. Verse 20 through 21. Because they did this, verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives. And the people, here we go again, repeated, the people grew, multiplied and grew very strong. Verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. This pattern of God using unlikely people, enslaved midwives for kingdom work is not isolated in Exodus, but it's seen throughout the Bible. We just studied this in our community groups. Who was it that God uses to defeat the giant Goliath in the battle with the Philistines? Was it the natural choice, like a guy named Saul who was taller and could, could do it by his own physical strength? No, it was David who was almost an afterthought, the smallest and, and second youngest, or smallest and youngest of the sons of Jesse. Because he feared God. Who is it that Jesus chooses to follow him in the Gospels? Does he choose the religious elite who would make sense? They already had an understanding of all this stuff, so let me, let me choose them. No, he doesn't choose those 
who would make sense to us. He chooses tax collectors who are kind of hated, fishermen, regular, insignificant folks. In Acts 4, after Peter and John, they stand before the Jewish council who could have easily put them to death and they preach the gospel of Jesus boldly in Acts chapter 4. They preach it without fear. And here's what we read in Acts 14, verse, Acts 4, verse 13. After they're done, it says this. Now when they, the Jewish high religious elite people, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Let that be true. I mean, let that be true of us in this room. Recognize that they've been with Jesus. God uses people like Shifra and Pua who fear him. God uses people like Peter and John, uneducated, common men who had spent time with Jesus. God uses normal, ordinary people. He wants to use you in this room. He does. He wants to use you to accomplish his plan of introducing people to the good news of the gospel. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God wants to use you to expand his kingdom and do his purposes and will? God doesn't desire your strength. He doesn't desire the best you have to offer. God doesn't desire the most power or the most influential you could possibly be. He desires a heart that loves and pursues God. He values, or he he desires us to know and love King Jesus over everything else. More than we desire gifts or ministry, let us desire him and to be people who whenever people look at us, they don't think, wow, that's an educated, uncommon man. No, I want people to look at us in this room and say, those are uneducated, well, those are common folk, but here's what I know about them. They have spent time with Jesus. Let's pursue humility and weakness, not in light of who, how terrible we are, but how great and worthy he is. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 27 says this, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not like two enslaved Hebrew midwives to bring the nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast. It's all God. It's what's happening in Exodus 1 with these two midwives. But Pharaoh unlike God, doesn't like it. He does not like that they fear God. That's not good news to him. And they disobeyed him. So let's look at our last verse, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh cuts out the middleman, the middle women, the midwives, and he issues the decree for all people. And if any little baby boy is born, he should be thrown into a raging river. Left to die. But, well, 
That, that's, that's the decree. In chapter 2 of Exodus, we read of an Israelite little boy who was born. But his mom, just like the midwives, instead of obeying the evil decree, she disobeys because she fears God, and she hides him. Doesn't tell anybody. She hides him. And then when he's three months old, she places him into a basket. Doesn't just throw him into the river. She places him into a basket and puts him in the river. Can you imagine the pain and the faith it took this mom to do this? And this three-month-old little boy placed into a basket, helpless, he's actually found. He's found. And by all of all the people that could have been found, he is found by Pharaoh's daughter. He's found by the king's daughter. And the text says in Exodus 2 that the daughter of Pharaoh, who issued the evil decree, it says that she finds pity on him. She finds compassion. How could you find a three-month-old baby in a basket in the river? And by God's sovereignty, she, she takes him and says, I need to find, like a, this is a Hebrew boy, I need to find a Hebrew family to put this child with. And guess who she finds? Mo, uh, the little boy's family. I wasn't supposed to say who it was yet, but that little boy is Moses. That little boy was Moses. I was trying to just hammer it at the end, but you probably already knew. It was Moses. And Moses, Moses grows up. And what do we know? What does Moses do? Moses grows up to be the one who delivers the people out of Pharaoh's hand. He delivers the people out of slavery. Here's our last truth. Truth number four. Nothing can stop God's plan from being accomplished. Nothing can stop it from happening. That's good news because if it could be messed up, I would definitely mess it up. Nothing can stop God's plan from being accomplished. God uses the most evil intentions of man. That every boy born as a Hebrew should be murdered. He uses the most evil intentions to actually bring about the Savior for Israel. The story of Exodus, as our students can tell you after we went to camp, the story of Exodus is amazing. But the story of Exodus, first of all, it's all God. Moses ain't the hero of the story. God did it through him. But the story of Exodus is just a foreshadowing of a greater story. And that story is the gospel story. If God uses the evil intentions of an evil king to actually bring about the Savior for Israel, God uses the evil intentions of men to bring about the Savior for the world. What do I mean by that? Let's talk about it. Jesus, truly God, truly man, lives a perfect life, right? Doesn't sin. Lives in complete obedience to the Father. But what happens? Because of sinful men. Because of the sin of evil men, he was treated as if he did wrong. He was treated as a murderer and a traitor. He didn't do those things, but evil men did it to him. And at the hands of evil men, he was crucified. He hung. He hung there 
on a wooden cross. Stripped, ruthlessly hanging there for people to gawk at, make fun of, ridicule, and he dies. The evil men thought, evil plans, the evil intentions of men thought, man, we're doing a good thing here. We are killing this lunatic who, who has made these claims about his divinity. We got him. We have killed him. But there's so much more at play that Jesus, who is truly God, truly man, he's hanging on the cross. And while he's hanging on the cross, he's not just dying, but he is taking the wrath of God upon himself. While he's hanging on the cross, he is being the perfect and once and for all sacrifice for sin. They thought they were killing him and being evil, but God was doing so much more. He was using the evilest of intentions of men to bring about salvation for the entire world so that he can offer you in this room eternal life, forgiveness. That's what's happening on the cross. Listen to Peter who preaches in Acts 3. After, after this guy, uh, they, they healed this man, Peter stands up and preaches to the Jewish folks, people who have descended from the family in Exodus 1 that we're reading about, verse 13 of Acts 3. He says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, he glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by his name, by faith in his name, Jesus, he made this man strong, in whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 17, he turns it around and says, and now you brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance when you killed Jesus, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then he says, repent therefore that your, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. There's nothing that can stop God's plan from happening. Not the evil man, not evil men with the evilest of intentions, not the death of God's son that actually accomplishes the plan, not persecution can't stop God's plan from happening. You can't stop God's plan from happening in this room. Your sin can't stop God's plan from happening because it's already been accomplished at the cross. Satan and all his enemy, all his Folks, enemies, evil people, they're fighting an evil. They're fighting a, a losing battle. Because one day, the plan that was when Jesus accomplished it on the cross, but one day the plan will be finally and fully accomplished. King Jesus will come back, and what will he come back to do? He will come back to take his people that he's been working to gather from Genesis 1 till now, till the day he comes back, he will take his people home with him. And then Revelation 5, 9 will be reality. 
Revelation 5 says this. This is coming one day. And they sang a new song. What are we going to be singing in heaven? This is what we'll be singing. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. <coughs> Jesus accomplishes the plan. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. Verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. That day is coming when all God's people will surround the throne and forever we will sing, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb who was slain to give us eternal everlasting life. Let's pray. We thank you for your sovereignty, God. We thank you for your, your, your eternal plan that you create a people for yourself. And Lord, if there's, for all of us in here who have accepted, who have placed our faith in Jesus, I pray now as we respond that we would respond as people who are thankful. It wasn't us who brought ourselves into the people of God, but it was all your mercy and all through faith in you. Not our working, but through faith. If there's anyone, uh, so I pray that you would cause us to worship rightly, to sing, worthy are you. Worthy are you, O Lord. You were able to accomplish it. And I, when we pray that we would, we would respond rightly in spirit and truth this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.